Hebrews 12, the verse 28, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honourable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I want to consider with you this morning mandates for pilgrims, the mandates for the Christian pilgrims. The theme of the epistle to the Hebrews seems to be Christians are pilgrims who are making their way to Zion, to the city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Christians are travelers through this world, this isn't their home, but they're kind of making a pilgrimage through it until they reach their destination. So they have something marvellous before them. As once we've come onto Zion. And we have to keep our eyes on heavenly things. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus the mediator. Who's on that heavenly Zion. That Mount Zion. And the blood of sprinkling. We have to keep our eyes on things above. Set our affections on things above the Bible says. Where Christ is. At the right hand of God. So we're forward looking. We are upward looking as we travel. We should have our eyes on the things hoped for. The new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection of the dead. These things we should often reflect upon. The more our mind is on Christ, the more spiritual we are. So pilgrims are desirous of the things that are before them. And our chief preoccupation is with Jesus Christ. However, that does not mean that we are careless on the earth. That does not mean that we are so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly use. No, we are to be godly pilgrims. And that's what Paul is saying now. You're not just come to Mount Zion You have arrived at its footstool, so to speak. But you haven't entered into the final consummation of it all. You're still pilgrims on the earth. Let brotherly love continue. Live this kind of life as pilgrims on the earth until you reach the consummation at the end. So that's what Paul is saying now. He's dealing with 
holiness of life. He's dealing with how to live as a Christian here below. Yes, we're looking up to Jesus the mediator and our mind is on that, but we're also on the horizontal, living in a certain way. You see, we are to be godly. Verse 28 of Hebrews 11. We receive in a kingdom which cannot be moved. It's eternal. It's fixed. We're making our way to it. There's no uncertainty about it. But let us in the meantime have grace. Whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So he's saying that we should live godly lives. And so we have to serve him reverently. So this is the part now that Paul is bringing us to. And he mentions one of the great motives of holiness is the holiness of God. Serve him acceptably for our God is a consuming fire. As pilgrims below we have to behave in a certain way because God's holy. We're saved, yes, but we can never forget he can't abide sin. And he wants us on our sojourney and our travel to be godly. To have godliness. So he doesn't want us to be like those at the Mount of Sinai. What did they do whenever Moses was away? They got drunk. They made idols and they they danced around the idols. And they feasted and were eating and drinking and making merry. Utterly given over to carnality and idolatrous behavior. At the very foot of Sinai. And we're at the foot of Mount Zion. And God doesn't want us to behave like that. He doesn't want us to be those kind of pilgrims. He wants us to be this kind of pilgrims that he goes into now in chapter 13. And what Paul does now is he he summarizes the two tables of the law. The first table in, in verse 28 of Hebrews 12. And then the second table at the start of chapter 13 in the epistle. Maybe you ask, why is this so important? Why concern ourselves about holiness? What does it matter how we serve God? After all, we're saved, we're on our way to heaven. Does it really matter? Does it matter how we live? Does it matter how we treat our brethren and our sisters? Does it matter if we're kind or unkind? Does it it really matter? Yes, it matters. It's important enough for the Holy Spirit to write it down here. It's God's mandate for the pilgrims. Our king in Zion speaks. And if he who spoke from Mount Sinai was listened to. So Jesus who speaks from Mount Zion ought to be listened to. And he also gives us the law. But he calls it acceptable divine service. And it has two tables still. Godward. And brotherward. Neighborward. Very important. So yes, God commands it. Our mediator commands it. Refuse not him that speaketh from heaven, Paul said in the end of chapter 12. So we have to listen. This is what he's talking about now. This brotherly love business and all that he goes into in chapter 13. Refuse not him that speaketh from heaven. So we have to be listening as Christian pilgrims on, at the foot of Mount Zion where we profess to have come. 
And then another reason why we should be interested in this business of holiness is because our chief pilgrim was holy. Jesus Christ. Remember how Paul is emphasizing that? He's a forerunner. He's the one who came into the world to be the forerunner, to go before us, to lead us. He's the chief pilgrim who leads all the other pilgrims. He goes up to Mount Zion, but he doesn't go up, up alone. He has us tagging along behind him, following behind him. So he's the one that we keep our eyes on as the chief pilgrim, the forerunner who's entered in first. And as a pilgrim, he was holy. He had such a righteous, godly, holy life. He did always those things that pleased his father. And that's another reason why we should be want, want to be holy. Because our forerunner was. And we want to be like him. And we want to go in like him. An abundant entrance into the kingdom. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He was the sojourner and the stranger on the earth. That is true. But this is how he behaved. Utterly harmless. Didn't we say that lately? What did he ever harm? Just a fig tree. That was all. Utterly harmless. Gentle. Kind. And he wants us to be like that. And the Gospel of Luke particularly is the Gospel that highlights him as the travelling pilgrim. Making his way to the, the Mount Zion. And he was, he was all of this. Holy and harmless and undefiled. And the Bible is often saying about his example. In fact, Jesus himself said it. I've given you an example, he says. You should do as I do. Follow me. He that abideth in him ought also to walk, even as he walked, to be the kind of pilgrim that he was. So that's why it's important. And then there's another reason why pilgrims must be holy. It is because as strangers and sojourners here below on the earth, we are also ambassadors for God. We are his witnesses. We are his light in this dark world, with the dark world that we are pilgrims going through. And we're the only light it is. They don't read their Bibles. We're, we're the light. We're the salt of the earth. We're the only ones who can bring them any good, eternal good. As Christ works through us. So we are his representatives. His ambassadors. His witnesses. And the world looks on us as the travelling pilgrims. There's the pilgrim caravan going through. There's the Christians going through the world. What kind of Christians do they see us as? Are we a holy caravan? A holy band? A holy church? Are we shining for God? Do you remember the Saviour said? You're the light of the world. The very light itself. You're a city on a hill that can't be hid. Let your light shine before men. That they may see your good works. And glorify the Father in heaven. You see the pilgrims below. Bringing glory to the king on Mount Zion. As we travel there. We're the ones who manifest the glory of God. And we do that by our life. By being godly pilgrims. Not by being good big talkers. But your life. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You're sometimes were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as the children of light. Travel through the pilgrim journey as that 
radiating the glory of God and the holiness of life. So this is what Paul is dealing with now. And so he gives the mandates for the pilgrims. What does the Lord expect of us here below? Well, with regard to the first table, the apostle is very brief. Hebrews 12, verse 28, the divine service. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That's the first table. The first table is about service to God. Godwardness worship. Having him as our God. Loving him supremely. Loving the sacred things of God. And using the sacred things of God in his worship. In a holy and reverent way. Having no idols. Keeping his day. Divine service. That's what we're doing now in God's house. This is divine service. This is. Now I know we're having supper tonight. And all of that. But you know supper is not divine service. This is divine service. Worshipping God. The first table. Supper is the second table. Kindness and hospitality. First table first. First table primary. Godward service. Reverence. Reverence in his worship. Reverence in his house. Godly fear. Why? God is holy. Our God is a consuming fire. So that's very important that we have reverent and godly worship. That we serve the Lord with fear. Service in the Bible is generally worship. You remember Satan said to Jesus, fall down and worship me. You know what Jesus said? That thou shalt serve the Lord thy God only. He used the word serve because he knows what the meaning of that word is. It's to do with the divine service, the worship of God. Like the priests in the sanctuary who did the service. The first table. So our worship is sacred, brethren and sisters. And it's important that we be in God's house on his day. And that we worship him reverently and in fear. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about, about him. And so that means anything foreign or anything idolatrous or anything contrary to the divine worship is not to be brought in. He's to be worshipped and served biblically in spirit and in truth, receiving all his ordinances, including baptism and the Lord's Supper, with reverence and godly fear. But of course we're not only to serve God. We are also to serve one another. And our neighbour. Not only to love God. The first table of the law. But also to love our neighbour. The second table of the law. His life. His property and all of that. And now that's what Paul comes on to in chapter 13. The second table. This brotherly love. This kindness. And so in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. You have there the kind of the general admonition of the second table. 
And then in verses 2 through to verse 7, he goes into the specifics, kind of going down each stage of the table. So verses 1 is the summary of the pilgrim duty, and verses 2 to 7, the enlargement of it, the duty towards our neighbour. So love to God, love to neighbour. Pilgrims have to have both, both tables of the law. We are to continue in both. Remember the apostle said, continue in the love of God. Yes. But we also are to continue in the love of man. Both. And we all know how much love is a summary of the law, isn't it? Jesus has told us that. One word to summarize the law, love. First table, love to God. Second table, love to man. And so he begins the summary of the second table, let brotherly love continue. Continue. Now we all know how important love is to Jesus Christ. He so greatly loved us. And there's nothing more he wants to find in his children but that they have great love too in their hearts. The Lord doesn't want you to have great anger and great wrath and great criticism and great complaining and murmuring or anything else. He wants you to have just great love. Great love. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. That's what he wants. That's his supreme desire. And that's why he gives us the spirit of love in our hearts. That we may love. These things I command you. That you love one another. That you do that. So the will of God, our mediator, speaking to us from the Mount Zion, is very clear this morning. Let brotherly love continue. Let it go on and abound. Whenever Paul says that it continue, he is, of course, implying that it faces hindrances, difficulties, difficult people, stubborn people, all kinds of hindrances, all kinds of things that crop up where we sort of throw up our hands and, you know, give up this loving business, this being kind business, this being patient business with others. No, Paul says, let it continue. Always continue it. Never give up. Never cease it. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't get impatient with one another, but continue. Abound in it. Remember Peter said, you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. On to unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So that's the generals. Let love continue. In the specifics, we see what love is. Now, as you study this, you will know that love is not a feeling in this passage of the Word of God. Love does. Love works. Love is kindness in action. 
bearing one another, forgiving one another. But what are the specifics then? Well, one way is, is hospitality. Verse 2. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now this is practical kindness to outsiders, strangers, the foreigners, the aliens, the ones from their home country, whatever. Now, it's not nice to be a stranger in a foreign place. That's what we are, you see, as Christians. We are strangers and pilgrims in a world that doesn't want us. And we're to be thoughtful of strangers on the earth. Yes, ourselves as strangers, but also other strangers. Not known to us. We know ourselves. None of us are strangers to one another. But we meet strangers from time to time. And we're not to be slow to entertain them. Providence gives opportunity to help other Christians outside our fellowship. They may be poor or traveling. They may be hungry or needy, whatever. But we should have kindness toward them. Not treat them badly because they are foreigners and strangers. This is a great test of Christian kindness. That the church has to rise up to. This is not lavish suppers for the rich and for someone who will give us much in return. No, the stranger is lonely. The stranger is poor, perhaps lost. The stranger is needy. The stranger is dependent upon kindness, needing kindness, looking kindness, being in an alien land and amongst an alien people. This is the test of our kindness, Christian kindness. Remember, even in the law it says this, The stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. It says, The stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, because you were strangers in Egypt. So even the Old Testament says this. And this is the measure of our works at the end of the day. Remember Jesus gave that parable of the, the great judgment day. And he said, I was in hunger and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. And then to others he said, I was a stranger and you didn't take me in naked and you didn't clothe me sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And they'll say, well, Lord, when were you a stranger? And when were you sick and in prison? And he'll tell us. And if we did visit and help and were kind, he said, you did it to me. And he'll tell us. You see, we should see Christ in everybody. That's what Jesus is saying there. You know, if you see Christ in everybody, you'll have to love him. And you couldn't be cruel or bad to them. You did it to me. And hospitality is an expression of our love for Christ. And we should think that Christ is in him or her. Christ identifies in some way or other to the stranger. The Lord Jesus became man. He took human nature. He came among men. He took humanity to himself. And so how, how we treat every man is, is in some regards having in our mind something of the humanity of Christ. How would we treat him? 
So we must never forget that he was man. And we must see every man as one who is an object of one needing grace. If he doesn't have Christ, he needs Christ. And we should love him for Christ's sake. And then genuine sympathy and practical kindness to the needy is another manifestation of it. Verse 3, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. And them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Now I'm not going through all these verses in detail. The imprisoned here, the burdened, the suffering, the abused. We are to stand with them. We are to remember them. We are to pray for them. We are to have sympathy. Compassion. Kindness. They're suffering the adversity. And we have to remember, you see how the body keeps coming in this? You're in the body still. You can suffer this as well. You can go through this as well. How would you like to go through this? Just by the fact of your humanity, you ought to have compassion. And you're not just a man now. You're you're a redeemed man in union to Jesus Christ. And he loved your humanity. And you are to love men. And it is to show kindness. Not contempt. Not disrespect. But kindness. We're not to stand with the oppressor. But we're to stand with the oppressed. And those in adversity. Naked you clothed me. Hungry you fed me. Sick you visited me. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. Weep with them that do weep. So this is what the pilgrim should be doing. Especially among our fellowship. One with another. As we journey. Another expression of brotherly love is chastity. Verse 4. Marriage is honourable and all. And the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. You see how the apostles going through the second table. A marriage is not to be interfered with. Nobody's marriage is, is, is to be interfered with. It's brotherly love. On a very basic level, it's just brotherly love not to interfere with anybody's marriage. Marriage is sacred. It's a bond in love. And anything that interferes with that is not brotherly love. So literally everyone has to respect the marriage bed. The married couple in that marriage bed and all brethren and sisters outside it and having nothing to do with it. It's to be respected. It's chaste. It's special. The marriage couple themselves are to keep it intact and private in their chastity one to another. And not to go outside it. Not lusting outside it. Because it's never love. It's never brotherly love. It's never kindness. Outside it. The bed is honourable and undefined. Paul even brings in a word of warning. Adulterers and whoremongers, God will judge. So brotherly love includes loving your spouse and all those outside that, loving that married couple so as not to interfere in any way, in a perverse way in that. We have to guard ourselves from all these things in brotherly kindness. 
to one another. Adultery is not love. It is lust. And then as pilgrims we ought to be a contented people. The world should see us as contented. They're a happy people. And what does the apostle say here? Let your conversation be without covetousness. Verse 5. Be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You've got the Lord. You've got the chief pilgrim. You've got the mediator. You've got the blood of sprinkling. You're on the very verge of the everlasting kingdom. You ought to be content below as you make your journey. Discontent, you see, leads to envy. And envy is the opposite of brotherly love and brotherly kindness. Discontent leads to extravagance and to lying, even to stealing and to breaking many aspects of the second table of the law, certainly covetousness, which is mentioned at the end, discontent is not conducive to holiness of life and godliness. And it ought not to be the character of Christians. What did Paul say? And he hadn't much when he was in prison. I've learned to be content, he says. Discontent breaks the love bond that is between us. It makes us self-centered. An Achan spirit, you remember Achan in the camp, he coveted this, he coveted that, he took this, he took that. You remember how he disrupted the whole camp because of that. That little pilgrim band of Israelites were so handicapped because of one man and his covetousness. You see how that last commandment is so vital? So important, holding up all the rest. Last, but not by any means the least in some respects. So contentment is so important to brotherly kindness. If we're not content, we're murmuring, we're complaining, we're talking about other people behind their back, we're getting people down, bringing them all this woe and trouble. A discontented heart causing disturbance in the church. Oh, brethren and sisters, we're going to glory. We have Jesus, the mediator. Can we not be content? Can we not be happy pilgrims as we journey along? Yes, we're not a perfect church. We are lacking in many things. We have so many faults. But let us be content with such things as we have. Because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's not the greatest thing of all. To have the Lord. To come here every week and to know the Lord is here. It's not the best thing of all. Should not make us content. He's here. And we're blessed. So let's be content. And the Lord will bless us. It's also seen in brotherly kindness extending even to the oversight. Verse 7, remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation or their conduct. It's always easy to blame the leaders, isn't it? It's always easy to blame the minister and the elders and the deacons for all the woes of the church and all the problems that we face and indeed the oversight are not infallible 
And they do make mistakes, as all men make mistakes. But we are to remember them. It's part of brotherly kindness, forgiving, praying for, even the oversight. So it's, it's not good to blame the oversight in our discontentment. But if they're faithful in giving you what is most important, you should remember them and pray for them and respect them. And what is most important? Well, Paul doesn't leave us in any doubt about that because what does he say here in verse 7? Who have spoken unto you the word of God. If you've got the word of God, what more do you need? If you're fed as the people of God and you're challenged by the word of God, what more do you need? So you have no reason to complain and moan and murmur if you're getting the word of God. And so you're to remember, and this brotherly kindness is to extend to the oversight there. These are not dispensable things for the pilgrims. These are essential mandates for us as we travel. And this is what the God, the judge of all, who sits on Mount Zion wants. This is what Jesus, the mediator, who speaks down to us the word of God from heaven. This is what he wants. This is what the blood of sprinkling has redeemed us for and purchased us to be. All the motives of it are found in Mount Zion. In that God and in that mediator. And in that blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of evil. And this is what angels who surround us are anticipating to see in us as they study the grace of God in the church. And they study us and they want to see brotherly kindness and what this grace has done in their depraved hearts. The angels are watching. Entertaining angels unawares. Yes. What kind of entertainment do they get as they watch us in church and in our homes too, perhaps? Let us give them a show that will be to the glory of God. Now, to live like this requires something. And the Apostle refers to that in chapter 12, verse 28. Let us have grace. That's what we need to live like this. Grace. Grace from the Mount Zion. Grace from the throne of grace. Grace from the Spirit of grace who comes down to us from Mount Zion to give up to us. Let us have grace. Whereby we can serve God and let brotherly love continue. Let us have grace. You know, if we don't get this grace and if we don't have this grace, it might be said of us, and this would be an awful thing to be said of any pilgrim, and you sometimes have heard the expression, he has no grace. Have you sometimes heard that? Have you sometimes heard that maybe of someone? He has no grace. Maybe he's a nasty person, he's not afraid to give you a punch or two when he gets angry, and you just have to say, he, he has no grace. That would be an awful thing to have to testify to about a Christian. 
Well, I wonder do the angels say that about us? He has no grace. You see, they don't know what's in the heart. They, they can't see the invisible things as we can't see them. They can only go by what they witness and see. Do they see grace in us? In our life? Do we see grace in our lives? We're often disappointed with ourselves. But let us have grace. Let us have more grace. Let us have abundant grace. And we can obtain it because in Zion, as Paul told us earlier on, there is a throne of grace. That we can always go boldly onto to obtain it. So there's no excuse for not having it. We can have it. Let's seek it. Let's ask the Lord for more grace in our lives. More Christian grace, Lord. More of this grace that the pilgrims need for your glory. So daily we must pray, Lord of grace, give us grace to serve thee with our whole hearts in truth and grace to have brotherly love to one another. May God give us this grace.